Hello, my dearest of friends. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Mind Make podcast. Really pumped. This one's great. This one was a really good episode, and it was the first episode where I'm actually quite proud of myself in terms of the uh, YouTubing editing. I did it all on uh, on iMovie, and you can actually watch the whole episode. It's a Skype episode, but you can watch uh, Eric and I go back and forth over uh, across the world. I'm in France right now, and he's in uh, in Austin, Texas. And you can have a look at uh, at how we spoke and what went down uh, at 8 p.m. my time. Paris time. It was an awesome show. We spoke about some deep things. We spoke about some uh, some Carl Jung, some psychoanalytical ideas. We spoke about love and truth and, and what that really means and the, the masculine and feminine, the, the, the truth of the masculine, the love of the feminine, how they sort of coincide together within each of us as with everything that exists in the world as well and how both those elements together can make something pretty special. And um, I thought it was a really great podcast. We also spoke about psychedelics and I guess the what they do. And we gave a little bit of an, an, an analogy. Actually, Eric did. He spoke about the castle, you know, being, being fallen down and then being rebuilt. And then I kind of took it on board that as well. And we went back and forth there. It was a really great episode. He is the... So he works at Onnit and he works for Aubrey Marcus as well, who's the CEO and founder of Onnit and an author himself. And I found Eric because I followed him on um, on Instagram and he put up this really cool post. It was talking about how he was microdosing with LSD, which is shown to be really, really beneficial, um, not only for mental health perspectives, but also for just increasing that ability to be creative and think outside of yourself and think outside of the the routines and the habits that you administer and that you 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 go through in uh in everyday life and that's for me anyway that's the idea behind psychedelics or or anything that gets you slightly out of your comfort zone you if you put it like this way you you take the same route home every day from work to home one day you get a little bit of a feel or an incentive to turn left instead of right. And then that taking you left takes you down a road which is has way more traffic. It has a lot more unknowns, some uncomfortable street signs and people on the corners and, and all these sort of things. But by the time you get home, you realize that that route was actually really quite fun and enjoyable. And you may have even driven past something on that route just by turning left that ended up being your new gym or ended up being a building that you went and applied for a job there and it ended up meeting the love of your life. And that's, I guess, what these things do. Meditation, dancing, psychedelic drugs, meeting just going up and speaking to someone that you've not spoken to before. They give you a little bit of a change in perspective. And we are creatures of habit fundamentally. More than 95%, 90%, I believe, uh, and the things we do in life is 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 from habit. So if we can just offer those little tweaks in perception um, by doing something uncomfortable once a day or whatever whatever feels right to you, not easy but right to you, we're going to grow as a collective and as individuals. So this is the sort of stuff that we spoke about, and I sincerely hope you enjoy the show. The pale blue dot. Hey! Yeah! Hey, mate! What's that behind you? You got like a nice furry wall there. Like a nice, real kind of like ketamine yeah. wall. <laughs> we, 
phone booth here is on it, and this is like shag carpet. Mate, that's so good. All I can see is like this beautiful white head because like the t-shirt's like perfectly camouflaged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the light is not great. Yeah. So what you been up to, man? Um, so I get to work like two or three hours before work actually starts and I work on my stuff and that's, you know, um, reading Jung, um, writing my newsletter and drawing and journaling. <clears throat> and so I do that every day and then work is basically just a fucking avalanche of things I have to do for eight hours and then I go work out and then I try to hang out with somebody that's attractive. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I had a look on your website because I wanted to see like the course and that you're doing and I, I read the about section and it was like you said to me in an email as well but how you had that one psychedelic experience and then you were just kind of having to pick up the pieces you know for, for a good couple of years there. Could you talk us through that because that's just so similar to my experience. For sure, man. So essentially what happened was whenever I answer this question, I have to pick how far back do I want to go. Mm. And uh, just to kind of like set the preface, um, I've always felt something spiritual in my life, but I was exposed to a version of Christianity when I was like five and six and seven that just was completely hollow. And so um, I never picked it up, but I still prayed every day for a long time. Mm. Uh, until I was about 14 or 15 and then I really became um, big into atheism and I, anyone who wanted to tell me God was real I was there ready to argue with them and <clears throat> I developed a pretty big ego from playing basketball in high school and then I tore my rotator cuff and then I had like that dream I had to die but I developed a strong insecure ego you know like that only a teenage athlete can have yeah and then i started to project that ego into philosophy because that was the next thing i really got interested in after my basketball dreams died mm. and when i was like 18 and 19 i was convinced that i was going to be the next Wittgenstein, and that i was going to write <laughs> a ecological treaty that would explain the world and <laughs> i would get high on weed and then I would read what I had wrote the day before and it was just garbage but yeah. <laughs> I was really caught in this minute that I was smart enough to understand the entirety of the university of logic so and awesome. then um, I started reading a book called Godel Escher Bach and then I uh, after I got through the first two or three chapters I did five grams of mushrooms and just the epiphany that is going to sound like duh now but to my 19-year-old self, it was, it was world-shattering, mm. was that thought is a subsection of reality and can never encompass the entire thing, and that logic itself, this is something I learned from the book Godel Escherbach, is that logic itself must refer to logic to validate itself mm. so in a mathematical sense it's inconsistent yeah and like that kind of just on five grams of mushrooms that just completely destroyed the god that i was trying to build for myself because my god then was logic i, mm. I could understand everything through logic and so that fucked me up for like two or three years because i hadn't developed any of my other conscious senses like I, I had not developed my ability to perceive my own feeling mm. I didn't have a connection to my intuition and I wasn't good 
at just being my only function and that I had developed was thinking and it just yeah and it took me like three or four years of really it was probably about a year and a half of like borderline if I had been taken to a psychiatrist between the ages of like 19 and halfway through 21 I would have probably been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder yep and I read a couple of books and um the books helped me specifically Prometheus Rising by Robert Anton Wilson. It helped me pull the pieces together enough to then, when I had found a woman that I was starting to fall in love with, I allowed myself to fall in love. And as anyone can attest, if you're a man and you're going to love a woman, you can't just live in logic. Mm. And so the invitation to actually be in a relationship and show up helped me to develop my feeling capacity and then um, a couple of years later, I started journaling, and then that helped me develop my intuition. And now I feel like um, I'm starting to draw again. I used to draw as a kid, and I stopped. That's helping me develop that fourth sense. That's like your ability to just perceive reality. Mm. Jung calls it the sensing function. Mm. And he thinks that there's only four ways that the consciousness can interface with reality. And it's thinking, feeling, intuition, and sensing. Mm. And so... My only God for a long time was thinking, and then it crumbled, and I had to develop these other three. Mm. Oh, man, I love it. And the reason I love it so much is because like 98% of it is the exact same with me. Like, yeah. I don't know how many grams of mushrooms my mate and I had when I was 18, but it was the worst trip of my life because I was not prepared for it in any way, shape, or form. I was holding back, you know, and I just, you can't, obviously, you know, you, you're going down a waterfall or whatever you're going down and it's like, hey, like, either I'm, you're going to walk with me or I'm going to drag you down this motherfucker, you know? Absolutely. And, um, I, the, the, you know, the visions and the things that happened in it were the most beneficial thing that ever happened to me, no doubt about it, as we all know. But at the time, it was just a complete manifestation of all my little insecurities. And you, with the philosophy idea, was me wanting to play AFL, just like the American NFL, you know? And um, that kind of all happened. So that was kind of like beginning to bubble up to the surface. And that it took those mushrooms for me to start to kind of feel that. And then 21, 22, I got cut from a team that I really wanted to play in. And then all of these mental health issues just boiled in through OCD, panic attacks, you know, all these things that, again, like yourself, I, um, I use reflective writing and journaling, um, which is what I used to do as a kid. I used to sit around and draw mazes as a kid and just write. I, I found a book that I was reading to my partner um, when I was 10 years old about this kid who had depression. I was weird. <laughs> I was writing about me. <laughs> but... Um, do you um do you still have the um the journals that you were writing? I feel so but there was one journal that was my like uh, when I, I really got into journaling and I was like I'm gonna do three pages every day until this entire thing is full and I did it every single fucking day like it was a religious act. I still think I have that journal, but yeah. then I have a bunch of journals that I basically I'm really big on not saving things like I have this belief that like it's in me mm. and that I don't need to save the actual thing so I burn through journals and I just throw them away oh yeah but I, st- I, but I think I kept that first one because it feels it feels sacred yeah of course of course yeah and did, did you have a rough time um 
starting the process initially. I mean, I know for myself and I've spoken to other people about as well that the hardest person to speak the truth with is yourself, but you know, looking in the mirror. So there's a lot of, you read back. The only reason why I said is because you read back on those diaries and there's a lot of lies in there, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, man. I think, that, I think that that's a great point. I think that the most healing, why journaling can be as healing as it can be when it's as healing as it can be comes down to how honest you are with yourself. I think that's where all the healing happens. Mm. And for me, uh, my journaling experience was kind of unique. Essentially, um, me and the girl that had helped save my mind that I fell in love with, we had broken up and I had a super severe back spasm, like to the point where I couldn't walk for like four days. Shit. And it was like, it was two days before she left. Like our quote unquote breakup was when she moved out and went to a new school for college. Right. And, uh, I had, I bought the artist's way. I don't know why, but I bought it. I saw it on Tim Ferriss's podcast and I can't remember why I bought it. I was like, I'm going to buy this and try it. Hmm. And I started to read it. And the first, it just, it hit me at the point in my life where I was like, I'm willing to try anything to help my back. And so I started writing and, um, it was one of those things where it just started and then I did it completely. Mm. I like for me, yoga and trying to meditate have been things that I've known I've wanted to do for years and they're really hard to get down and I've gotten meditation down Mm. and I do it daily. But now my yoga thing is like, I've been trying to make that consistent like four fucking no like maybe seven years man and i still don't have it down yeah yeah for journaling it just clicked yeah yeah for sure it's good and i I wish it was um yeah it's funny people say you know they can't meditate or that they can't write and you just want to be like man like it's so extra important for you then you know like it's so good to be able to be able to do it then and you 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 see the results I, i think it's Who's that psychologist that you told me about who's actually doing some studies on it? He's, he's in Texas as well? Yeah, James Kennebaker, a leading researcher in what's called expressive writing. Mm. There's over 100 studies that show that when you do expressive writing, if you have trauma, um, if you have trauma and you do the expressive writing, dozens of metrics that measure physical and psychological health like it's fucking it's inarguable Mm. do you know the like is there a good way to explain to the listeners why that is just apart from kind of what we said for the layman before yeah yeah so a way to think about it is your consciousness is like a internet browser on your computer and any idea that you have in your mind that you have to act on is like an open tab and most people have like 50 to 100 open tabs on their browser. If you have trauma from your past, your consciousness, what it's doing when it brings up that memory, so like you try to fall asleep at night and that stillness and that darkness comes and you continue to think about a thing that's happened in the past, your, your psyche is essentially asking you, give us a plan of action that if this happened again, we would know how to act. And the way the conscious mind works is that once you have that, it's like you close that browser. Mm. But the thing about trauma is it's like 
having an open browser that's trying to play a high resolution video so it just eats up even more energy than a than a normal open loop and this energy requires resources from you and so it makes like if you have a lot of trauma if you use this if you use this metaphor and you have like four or five open tabs that are all trying to play a video like a heavy video the amount of resources that you have to take away from things like your immune system go way down or your your ability to sleep at night goes way down because you're trying to process all this shit mm. and for whatever reason the way the conscious mind works is that if you write out a causally a, a cohesive causal story about why it happened that seems to be enough to close most of the browsers mm. and so when you do the expressive writing the point of it is slowly it's a five-day procedure is the normal protocol that James Pennebaker measures. And by the fourth and fifth day, you're, you turn it into a story. Mm. And when our consciousness understands a trauma in the form of a causally cohesive story, it's like you close the browser. And so you just freed up a bunch of your psychic energy that was trying to load that video to mm. like repairing your muscles, sleeping better, taking care of your immune system. It's per that's a perfect metaphor, man. And you know, for for people that have dealt with and reconciled trauma, it it makes you know psychosomatic sense. You you know you know what that feels like when you say like you're you know it, you feel lighter. You really do. The first yeah. time, the first time I began interpreting interpreting my dreams, there was a series of dreams that came up where I was on a sporting field, and I was kicking a ball to whatever you know. And then after a very short amount of time, I got strangled or I like, I'd feel myself being unable to breathe. I can remember experience when I was a young kid, um, you know, having that sleep paralysis idea where I saw the, the ghost of, that was in Scooby-Doo that I used to be really scared of, but I didn't know it at the time. You know, I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> but um, all these experiences in these dreams, I related it back to a moment when I was playing football and um, the opposition team, one of their players had me in a chokehold. And that trauma, like you said before with the, with the browsers, like it must have got caught between reaction and emotion before and it kind of st stuck there before I was able to cognitively process it. So it, it came out in these dreams again. And it was something, even just me being aware of that, and I never had that dream ever again. So, yeah, yeah. you know, that's mm. That's one of the most amazing things that Jung talks about is that, all right, in our culture, we want to know what do I have to do to fix the thing? And what Jung talks about and what your story highlights is that it seems to be for a lot of these psychic issues, simply truly becoming aware mm. of it, not just paying lip service to like, oh, you know, I had this trauma but really connecting to like admitting to yourself how you felt in that moment in a way that maybe the ego is not okay with admitting, like, but just becoming conscious of it. It's like it evaporates. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And did you have a, uh, like an aha moment for yourself or was it a series of moments where you were able to kind of grasp the experience of the mushrooms? Because it sounds like the mushrooms experience for you was pretty traumatic. Yeah. Um, 
Let me think for a moment. Sure. I think... I don't remember a specific aha moment, but I know that the book that I read after that experience, that at some point during that book, I had the aha moment. Mm. Um, but it was Prometheus Rising by Robert Anton Wilson. And essentially the idea was... I can never know, like capital T true, mm. and that that's okay. Mm. And then I found the philosophy called pragmatism, which is now what I feel like is my metaphysical stance on all of this. And but I don't remember an acute moment. To mm. be honest, it was more of a slow, gradual. Like um, my entire Lego castle got wiped out, and yeah. I slowly over the course of two years, rebuilt a new castle that was stronger. Yes, exactly, and it it's more of a you're building a you're building a castle that almost doesn't matter. Its foundation is predicated upon the idea that it doesn't matter how many times it breaks apart and it falls down because that's not the point right. of its standing. And I think that that's the big thing. I think that's a huge insight about the true medicine of your first bad trip. Mm. Is that before that bad trip? You think you have one castle and you have to protect this castle. What happens after a really powerful trip is you are the thing that makes castles. Yeah. <laughs> and your castle can break over and over and and once you once you see that the first time, it completely changes your life. You're like, Oh, I'm I'm a castle maker. Yeah. <laughs> whoa, whoa, okay, so I don't have to be attached to this castle. I can just for fun, try to create the dopest castle. And if my castle breaks down, it means I didn't make a good one. I can do it again and again and again. Oh man, that's so true, isn't it? It's so true. But you tell, you know, and I don't want to be that person to say you tell people that are stuck in their ways because, I mean, I, I was it was complete dumb luck for me to see that. And I'm not even saying that this way that we're talking is the right way or the wrong way. Purely and anecdotally, it just had a really good effect on us to where we are now with that ability to let, to let go of things. Because it, it is worth noting, some people break their castle and they never, ever make a new one and they lose their fucking mind. So that for sure is a part of what happens here. Absolutely. Yep. And it's, 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 um, it's tough. It's really tough. And I think that awareness to some degree in which, you know, even ourselves may not ha have entirely only comes when you're willing to literally let it all break down, <laughs> which is not fun. Absolutely. Mm. And I think it's really important about the environment in which you allow it to break because if it's a chaotic environment, you might not put the pieces back together. Like if you're an 18-year-old and it's illegal to do mushrooms where you're doing mushrooms and you do them out in the woods and you think you see the cops during your breakdown and you end up in you know a police station, like you may never put it back together properly. Yeah. If you're in a place that's safe and you're with a guide who has gone there before and you're laying on a bed and you have I've or and you have blindfolds and a beautiful playlist and whenever you're experiencing a hard moment you can take off the blindfolds and ask them a question and then over the course of eight hours they slowly help you build back your sense of reality. Mm. Like it's really important where you choose to destroy your castle. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because yeah, you're right, man. You're going into uncharted waters, 
And um, by definition, you know, it's unknown and unknowable. Who knows what could happen, you know? Um, I had an idea. You mentioned pragmatism before, and um, William James was great. And um, Absolutely. the idea that I wanted to, to speak about is because you can find yourself, you have an experience like this, and obviously you and I are talking about psychedelics at the moment, but just getting creative has a really good way of, you know, becoming the observer and you can get that through dancing and singing and just doing something weird. I remember listening to a um, Tim Ferriss podcast as well and he spoke about a time where, or a series of times where he would just like lie on the ground in the middle of the fucking city just for something weird, yeah. something weird to do, you know? Um, based off of that idea, because you can go too far into that world too, What what has been like the best tools for you to maintain that balance in reality as well i actually just talked about this on a podcast yesterday i think the two most powerful things that i have found that regulate me between you know this world and quote unquote that world Mm. like the world of the imagination and dreams synchronicity and psychedelics and all that stuff is yeah Try to be in truthful, loving relationships with a tribe of people that you trust and respect. They will constantly regulate your egomania. Yeah. And the second thing, which might even be more powerful, is try to create something that you sell. That is one of the most challenging fucking things that people <laughs> who quote-unquote are spiritual can possibly do because, like... It just it cuts through all your bullshit. Mm. Trying to create something in the in the physical world that people will pay for. Mm. I think, um, at least on my path, I've had so much resistance growing up to the idea of making money, mm. and it's because my parents grew up without money, and they unconsciously had stories about people who have a lot of money are bad people. Yeah, and, they're all bad people. <laughs> you know, I, right, and I've thought about it like if so. I read a book called Sapiens that really highlighted a thing for me that blew my mind. And it's that if you look at the history of science, most science is funded by war or the government. And I just had this aha moment, like, oh my God, like, because I wanted to get a PhD in clinical psychology. And yep. I had debated for like two years about what's the most effective way for me to help the most people. Mm. Is it to become a PhD or would it be to start a business? And I have so much resistance to starting a business. Mm. But when I read that in Sapiens, I was like, whoa. Most science is dependent on somebody else paying the checks for the scientists. And most scientists don't get to study what they really want to study. They have to study something in a way that either profits a governmental agenda or war. Yeah. So I was like, no. I'm going to learn how to run a business and I'm going to use the profits of the business to fund my research in whatever way I want to do it. Mm. And it's going to be insanely hard. But I think that trying to create something that people will buy will hone, will just cut through your bullshit. Mm. And then, like, if you think that you're enlightened because you did mushrooms, try to sell something. <laughs> if you think you're enlightened because you did LSD, try to love a partner in truth. Like it'll just cut through your shit. Mm, mm, it's so true. And it's another good one with that is if you think you're enlightened, try to spend Christmas with your parents. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's fucking, it's 
brings you down. <laughs> oh man, I know, I know. And um, I think it's worth mentioning what you mean by truth as well with the capital T. Did you want to go into that a bit? Yeah, so um, I don't think you can know what capital T truth is, which is basically how I understand it is truth without the human bias. I think that, but when you're in truth in a relationship, it's basically to the best of your ability to articulate what your truth is, to articulate that truth. And an easier way to say it is don't consciously lie. Mm. Like most of us don't know what truths are because we don't know ourselves and we're in a constant process of trying to understand ourselves or our truth is always evolving. But mm. we know when we're lying. We, we, we know when we lie. And I think one of the most powerful self-development tools you can pick up is to make a promise to not consciously lie to any of the people that you love. Mm. Because like, if your partner does something that makes you feel insecure and you feel shame about feeling insecure, like those are two truths that you need to bring up. Like I feel shame for the fact that you hugging that guy at the coffee shop made me feel inferior, but I feel like I need to tell you that I felt that and that I know it's not your fault. I know it's my projection, but that's my truth. Mm. And then you guys could have a really good conversation instead of kind of being unconsciously cold to her for like 12 hours and her not really knowing why. And then her trying to play catch up in some weird game where you're like, well, I was wounded. So I retreat. So you have to grovel at my feet. Yeah. You know, like fuck that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you're right. I was about to say, pardon the pun. And it's true. But the thing about that is, and possibly why it's so hard is because it demands the utmost degree of, personal responsibility because when you say it like that and you say hey when you did hug that dude at the coffee shop you're you're saying and you have to say it like this that it is my projection it's got nothing to do with you so the next four hours that you and i are talking we're talking through my shit and that's hard man it's fucking hard (laughs) yeah absolutely and that's why it's important to find a dance partner you know a partner who is willing to accept that agreement at the beginning. Mm. Like, whoever I date, when I do date them, that's going to be like our number one talk. Like on day one, even before we get the appetizer, it's like, hey, if you're about this, this is the agreement that um, I will make to you and that I will only accept this dance if you agree to this too. Yeah. Always lie. Always, you know, just beat around the bush. Always. (laughs) Oh, it's good. And there's that, um, ah, what was that book I was reading? It was a Carl Jung book. It was the second book uh, that I read by him. can't remember what he said, but he, he related the idea of truth and love to the anima and the animas, you know, the feminine, the masculine, the masculine, the feminine. And he said that there were two actual Greek ideas. It was the logos and the eros or something like that. I can't remember. Whoa. Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps. Okay, so the anima is love. Anima is truth. Anima is the feminine in the masculine, which is the love. And then the animus. I know. It's good, eh? (laughs) So for each of us to build ourselves psychologically, we have to, for men, resonate with the feminine. And then obviously the women have to resonate with the masculine inside of themselves. 
And it's so true. Like, I mean, at least for the most part, for me, you know, before playing football, you know, well, even when I was trying to play football, I was obsessed with learning everything and understanding the intelligence behind these things and practicing the game to, to the extent that I could logically. I had no concept of emotional intelligence. It was a load of bullshit. And then you see on the other side, at least from what I've experienced with talking to, you know, some of my friends that are, that are chicks, and this could be entirely um, just from my experience, but they resent that need almost or that drive to pursue things that require that masculine essence almost you know it's uh it's amazing how he was able to write this <laughs> yeah and what, what kind of blows my mind is i i think i've read that somewhere so this might be a form of crypto amnesia which is basically where you read something that you read and then thought that you came up with it yeah yeah my name is carl jung <laughs> <laughs> exactly um <laughs> Is that uh, my two highest values, like my ethos, is to be in truth and to be in love. Mm. And the fact that he found that those were the, the two core pieces of the yin and yang of the anima and animus, like it just, it just, it's like seeing a beautiful math equation that explains a force of nature. I'm like, oh yeah, that that I, that makes sense. Mm. Love and truth. Mm. It's, it's almost like seeing a beautiful maths equation that explains you. You like you see this Amen. thing at the, yeah. and then at the very end, it's like a perfect like portrait of your face. And you're like, oh my God, I understand how those numbers coincide with my massive nose. I get it. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I what you're saying. yeah. Oh, very well played, sir. Very well played. <laughs> and so tell us about the business endeavors then. What are you, what are you building? What are you, what are you thinking? Yeah, so my life mission is to create the most empirically effective psychological systems for treating depression and anxiety. And I want to create them in such a way where if I were to die, they would still work. Mm -hmm. So it's about right now, as I understand it, it's about making online courses. Yep. And I want to make them in such a way that when they're done or perfected, they will be clinically studied and compared to the type of interventions we have now that have a success rate of like 40% if they're lucky. Mm. And ideally I want to create like an online university that has a whole bunch of courses that if I died, it still heals people. Mm. Yeah. I love it. And more and more people looking towards the online thing too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think, um, so there's this thing, I forget what the term or it's called, bibliotherapy and there's actually been scientific articles that look at there are some books that when read and when done have a higher success rate at um, curing not curing but reducing depressive symptoms than standard interventions and the moment I read that I would, my fucking brain went off like a Christmas tree like that's possible mm -hmm. and the thing about that is that's scalable like mm. if I put together the right sequence of words and videos that could potentially help a million people, mm. like potentially. Mm. But if I'm only talking to a person in a room one by one over the course of 10 years, I maybe talk to 200 people. Yeah. Like that is not the best use of my finite time on this planet. Mm. And so I want to learn the whole business of like, how do you, 
create all the infrastructure to have a course online. Like you have to fucking host a website, you have to build a website, you have to create the backend, you have to get the hosting platform for the course, you have to get a coder to make sure that if, you know if shit breaks, they can go ahead and fix it. And it's going to be a lifelong thing. Mm. And because I have a very full time job at Haunted right now, like I'm just exploring the pieces of what this will look like on the side. But I know that's where I want to go. Mm. And man, it, it couldn't come at a better time. You know, we have the restriction of only having read, I guess, the last 150 years ish of what mental health was like, you know, in, in still in the modern world. But it seems like mental ill health is, is on the rise, especially with, um, you know, depression and anxiety. It seems like there's a real existential crisis going on, you know, because, um, and this is the sort of stuff that, you know, obviously Victor Frankl spoke about where when the the suffering in life is no longer based around the idea of just being able to live another day, you know, when everything becomes meaningless, because at least in the Western world, because everything is just so available, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? And people are going nuts, you know, are you, are you seeing that? Because do you do clinical practice as well? And no, so I got a bachelor's of science in cognitive psychology, and then um, I I thought for like two or three years about whether or not I wanted to get a PhD. So yeah, I don't have clinical work um, or clinical experience, but I have seen what you see. And mm. What it seems like to me is that we don't have a proper myth right now. You know, religions used to be the myth-giving vessel that gave people meaning beyond the mundane world. With the rise of science, uh, we've killed off a lot of our religions, but it's because the religions had stultified to the point where it came down to them making scientific claims, yeah. which science should have overtaken those stultified uh, carcasses of what they used to be. But the essence of the religions were individuals experiencing parts of the human experience that are so fucking powerful that no word can describe it and that we had to create really intense stories and images to capture these feelings and the religions then became roadmaps to how to experience those feelings but then over hundreds and hundreds of years it stultifies more and more into rules and dogma and then it's just empty mm. so the religions needed to die in some sense because they had been dead for a long time Mm. but our culture now we need some type of story that fits into the cultural environment that we're in that inspires people in a way to carry the burden of being in a way that produces happiness and I don't know exactly what that looks like but it's got to be something like if you are in the world to the point that you can see this video or you have access to the internet, you are in a spot in evolutionary history that no human has ever been before. And you are responsible for using this gift to try to bring light and love, whatever that means to you, to the greatest number of people and that you should sacrifice the weak parts of you that want to binge watch Netflix or to drink in such a way where you lose the next two days. You have to give that up to genuinely try to find what your passion is in the world and then to step into it so fully that by you being in your passion every day, you heal people. 
Jeez, you you put that very well, my friend. You put that very well. <laughs> someone someone want to write that down? <laughs> you spot on. And and I think you know on top of that as well, we do need the myth. You know, we, we number one do need do need the myth, but number two we need we need time to go away and think about the myth. You know, and we need we need time to go away and even think about ourselves. And we um we, I mean, it was more or less inevitable that people found themselves in solitude you know 200 300 years ago even 100 years ago because we weren't always able to tap into some something with you know a lot of stimulus but <clears throat> it's it's crazy to think that we actually have to make time for ourselves to meditate in this day and age you know we can't just we can't just be meditating you know as we go about candidly and i was having this discussion with my partner a couple of weeks ago and you look at the rising trends in, in the Western world and, you know, you know that everything that we know logically is just a, a series of opposites. And you look at for something, you know, for something like CrossFit, where are we mentally for literally breaking your fucking body every day for that to be not only financially sustainable, but a huge, huge industry? It's crazy. <laughs> So I think the thing that can be learned from things like CrossFit is that any container that provides the opportunity for people to gather together, to suffer in a meaningful way together, Mm -hmm. and then to build community, we are literally willing to destroy our body. Yeah. And I think that that's the is that we are so deprived of communal tribal connections that we are starving for it Mm. and i think that um like i would rather crossfit exist than not exist in the to the extent that it's bringing hundreds of thousands of people together in a way that has the same type of effect on their psyche as people going to church Mm. like that's one of the big thing that that's one of the big healing components about religion is that it has a built-in component where people get together in a non-work or a non-family way and they share in customs that bring them together Mm. and i think that is one of the things that uh whatever the myth of our time becomes or is it has to address that issue of communal gathering in a way that is healing absolutely and um i should mention as well that i am a i'm a crossfit coach so i do love it (laughs) (laughs) I actually, I do quite enjoy it. It's good fun. <laughs> uh, and so what are some of the stuff you're working on then at Onnit? What are you building there? Um, essentially, I am um, the head of brand for Aubrey. So, I, so anything that's kind of like forward facing, I try to help make dope. Um, nice. And uh, I want to make courses for him and he wants me to do that too. But there's just so like, if feels like a startup here where there's just so many things to do Mm. and then we iterate so quickly on the things that we're doing that it's hard for me to carve out the time Mm. to make the courses but um i don't flinch on my vision and so i know that that's where i want to go and so whenever there's moments where there aren't things to do i slowly start to move towards that but my main function right now is um aubrey has a thing called fit for service and i'm kind of the main dude behind the scenes keeping all the things connected 
and that takes about four or five hours a day. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I wanted to get back into that um, slightly more philosophical area as well because you mentioned the word vision that just sparked something in my head as well. And um, I'm 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 just about finished the first draft of my second book, which is basically taking someone through an existential crisis because that's where I found myself when I when I started writing it and. Yeah. At the beginning of it, you know, you hear these words about meaningful pursuits and like happiness, yes, but what's actually worthwhile to you intrinsically and where are your values and all this sort of stuff. For someone that doesn't have a vision or doesn't really understand the significance behind a vision, could you kind of explain that area for them? Yeah. Okay. So, um, the truth is, is that I don't know the answer on this yet because I only have my experience, but I'm going to go off of my experience. And there's a quote that I saw about five or six days ago that I really love. And it's that the truth is not hidden. You are hiding from the truth. And for people who say they don't have a vision or they don't know what they want to do, because I only have my experience and I've known, like it's, it's, I've known the seed. It's it's grown more into a plant and into a tree, but mm. I've, I've, I've always known, mm. at least since I can remember it. And so the thing that I would offer people is, you know, really it's how far away from the river are they where I find them will determine what piece of advice I give. But like, um, if I imagine you're all the way away from the river, like yep. as far away as you can be. Savannah. Huh? savannas like desert yes, desert yes. desert in the middle of the desert yeah the first thing that i would offer is i would teach them how to meditate just enough so i can start so they can start to see that there are other things happening in them mm. and it's that uh you have an ego you have a thing that watches the ego you have a personal unconscious, which are all the things that you could bring into consciousness but are currently not in consciousness. And then you have a, a true unconscious mm. that you don't have direct access to, but like it makes sure that your cells reproduce and that your heart beats. Like there's a huge thing inside of you that isn't you. Mm. And then I would try to help them begin to discern between the ego and the intuition. And I, I personally believe, I don't know if this is true, but that the more honest you are with yourself and with others, and the more you do things that you know you should do, but that you're afraid to do, mm. that intuition gets stronger and stronger. And then it just comes down to, are you willing to face whatever the truth is of what your intuition is going to tell you that your vision or mission is, and your ego probably won't want to hear it. Like, it's not going to be become a banker and make X amount of money. Like, mm. maybe for 1% of the population, your thing is to go into finance and to completely change it. Can you imagine that, how sick that would be? Right. Coming out of a fucking trip and being like, sweet! <laughs> I meant to do this. Yeah. Meant, yeah. That'd be so That's good. Sure. Yeah. Um, but what I would like, so, so there are some parameters to what I think fit into anyone's vision. And it's, is it, are you going to cultivate mastery in some domain of life that you have passion for? Mm. Are you going to help a lot of people by doing it? And is it going to require you to work hard for the rest of your life? Yes. Like, I think it's going to have to fill each of those check marks. Mm. And I think anyone listening, if, 
it really comes down to do you want to hear the truth and if the answer is yes like sincerely sit down with a piece of paper and write what is my life's purpose mm. and really fucking mean it like be willing to hear what comes up and I'm willing to bet my lunch that I'm about to eat after this nice. that if you write until the end of the page you are going to have enough clarity to know what to do for the next year mm. absolutely absolutely and they don't have to be very very philosophical things they don't have to be very very big things you're exactly right you can write down you don't you don't figure out that vision you know after a page but you may figure out exactly what you know you need to do for the next three days it's like fuck I, you know, yeah. look it's obvious that i just have to go and apologize to my mum because i'm feeling really bad for exactly. the way i treated her exactly. mm. and a metaphor that i would offer to bring clarity to this because every time i bring this up the person i'm talking to has a response like you which i think is accurate because i give off a false impression that <laughs> it doesn't have to be big and you don't have to know all of the steps the way that i think about it is like you're in a dark forest and your intuition is like a beam of light that comes out of your chest and it might go eight feet. The more you act in accordance with it, which I believe is to be in truth and to do things that you're afraid to do and to act and to go where it points, mm. you get stronger. Mm. And you might only see eight feet in front of you. Mm. And once you get eight feet, it might turn right. And mm -hmm. then you turn right and then it turns left and then you turn left. But the more you act on it, it's like it gets stronger mm. and stronger and stronger. And maybe after four years of you doing this, you have a floodlight that's bursting out of your chest where you can see the mountain four miles away and you know that's where you're going. Mm. But be willing, like, the thing is, is, like, I told you what my vision is and maybe my intuition a year from now is like, hey, dummy, nope. Yeah. This is what you needed to believe it was to get to this point, but True. now it's this. And it's like, I bow to the light mm. that's shining the way mm. as opposed to where my ego wants to go mm. absolutely and you, you said it that that um that visual representation of vision is is so lovely because you see you may be feeling so on on the ball with it you can see those mountains just outside the transcend the forest but that vision is taking you through that forest it's not as though when you find a vision you're like everything's la -di da in fact it's almost <laughs> like it's like there's more and more suffering because you see the shit that you have to go through in order to get there, you know? And you, you mentioned another good idea there where it was like, do the things that you don't want to do. But they offer such good insights. They're the biggest lessons, you know? That's what fear is, really. I do think that that is probably the, that is the one thing that has most changed my life in the last two years is that when there is something to be done that I know is good for my growth, that I can feel I don't want to do, to do it. It's one of those things where it sucks if you haven't built the habit of doing it because 100% yes. of the time, on the opposite side of that, I'm glad I did it. Oh but yeah. It has yet to happen where I did the thing I was afraid to do but I know I shouldn't have done, where I didn't feel good that I tried it afterwards. Mm. It hasn't happened yet. Mm. And it's like, if you think of your life as a sphere that's the border of the sphere is your fear 
And any time that you move beyond it, it's like you make the sphere slightly larger. It's because you did the thing that you were afraid to do. Mm. There will always be things that you know you should do that you're afraid to do every mm. single fucking day. And if you do it, your sphere of the known grows. Mm. It's just you know, it's it's just how it's just how you become doper. Uh, yeah, so true. And it's not even a spiritual thing to say. Like much of our evolution is predicated upon this idea that we are you know, primitively a scared species and that facing fear has broadened our ability to know more knowns. Absolutely. So it's weird, man. It's before I started doing this type of living, fear was a thing that I instinctually like, okay, I move away from it. Yeah. But it's actually like, it's the GPS. Mm. It's showing you exactly where the growth opportunities are and fear and danger are different. And there's someone who has a gun pointed at you. That's not the fear that we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, shoot me, man. It'll be good for my growth. <laughs> exactly. exactly, exactly. Do not do that. Yeah. But the type of fear that I'm talking about is like, um, there, there's a beautiful woman that's making eye contact with you and I'm terrified of going up there and getting rejected. Mm. Go do it. Absolutely. And see what happens. Get rejected. And enjoy it, you know? It's the way yeah, to do it. Like, and the thing that I want to, also articulate is that just because you do the thing that you're afraid to do doesn't mean you succeed mm. but the success is, for me is that I did it mm. like there are plenty of things in the last two years that I was afraid to do I tried to do and I quote unquote failed mm. but I feel good anyways because I did the thing I tried absolutely and you see you begin to see you know that I think what we're just saying here is 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 trying you know and you may not, it, it's not always going to be a green light. Oh yeah, of course, public speaking. Oh, now that I'm doing it, this is what I love to do. You know, it may not be like that at all. It may hardly ever be like that. But when you do public speak, you'd be like, oh, I'm so pumped that at least now when I say no to the next speaking engagement, it won't be because I'm fucking scared. It'll be because I actually Absolutely. don't enjoy it. Absolutely. Mm, I know. Public speaking for me, I had a panic attack whilst I was briefing a bunch of CrossFit members at my old gym that I used to work for. Um, this is when I was really picking up the pieces of the puzzle and um, I had two panic attacks actually within about three weeks and then my amygdala just went bang right hold this fear in for good you know and it took a lot of work for me to be able to even visualizing public speaking for me now is still kind of riffity you know but it's very meaningful now because it's you know that's where the fear is I think that I would offer which so I know I'm going to get to a point in my life where I have to do public speaking and it terrifies me. Yeah. But I read this in a book and it really resonated and I know I'm going to do it. And it's where the moment you go up on stage, you close your eyes and you start to note the feelings that you're feeling as if you were meditating alone. And so it'd be like, I, my hands wetting. I feel fear in my stomach. I can feel my mind starting to think about what if I'm not good enough? And mm. you just start going through that. And I read a story about a guy who went up on stage and was having a panic attack. And he learned this way of noting his feelings uh, when he did Vipassana. Mm. And for like five minutes, it took him five minutes, but he was on stage and he closed his eyes and, and he had to work through it for five minutes. And he opened his eyes and everyone in the crowd was crying. Because he, he stood up there in his vulnerable 
naked truth and just talk, just non-judgmentally articulated all of the feelings and emotions that were arising in him. And I think the reason why people cried is because it's the number one rated fear. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's public speaking. And why is it that, why is it that terrifying? And if you think about it, I don't know if this is true, but this story has stuck. And it's that if you think about us as an evolutionary animal, when would you ever be speaking to a crowd? Mm. You were, you were either the chief or you were trying, or you were basically being confronted and judged about whether or not you should be exiled. Yeah. And, and, and if you were exiled a hundred thousand years ago, you died. Absolutely. And so the thinking is that it's, <clears throat> it's this primal, primal thing where the, tr- all of the tribe is watching you right now. And if you don't act according to the rules or the culture of the tribe, you are exiled and you die, mm. you know? I mean, and for that reason, you know, the fear of death, a close second, and the fear of public speaking <laughs> are very, very, they're pretty, pretty fucking similar because public speaking yeah. and screwing it up means death anyway, <laughs> you know? Exactly. It's crazy, man. Working on, a, working on a farm and talking about this fear with public speaking, and there's about 50 sheep here that we have to feed every morning. You see the way sheep act and you're like, oh my God, we are a bunch of sheep. Like we are so social and we have, we have survived this long because of our social abilities that we don't ever want to move away. <laughs> yeah, and I think the really beautiful thing about humans is that we are sheep, comma, mm. and we are also wolves and owls and bears and whales and like all of the characteristics of all of the animals because of the type of brain that we have we have all of those, Mm. you know? And so you can step into the sheep role when when it's adaptive and you can step into the wolf role Mm. when it's adaptive. Absolutely, man. Dude, I think um, I was about to say what's like one little bit of advice that you could give, but I think you've just punched it out perfectly there, dude. It was awesome. (laughs) Have you got, um, Um, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, The core thing that I would offer is, um, Try your best to be as honest as you can with the people you love and yourself. Mm. I love it. Godzi, my friend, have you got any uh, social links, things like that you want people to hit up? Yeah. um, My Instagram is the main place that I'm uh, on, and it's Eric Godzi. You know, it's at Eric Godzi. If you want to stay in touch with my email list, I basically send out a weekly email where I talk about like, Basically, I stole Tim Ferriss' email structure and I just list like five dope things and I give a quote from Young and my interpretation of it. Eric so Ferris. If you, want, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to check that out, you can go to ericgotsi.com and just sign up for the email list. And I have a course on journaling if you guys are interested in, you know, because I talk about journaling everywhere. Mm. Um, if you go to my website, there's a button that says course. And you, ju- you can go click on that and check it out. Sweet. Dude, thanks so much. That was awesome. Absolutely, man. Thank you. You are a great interviewer. There's lots of people that I do podcasts with where they just either have it or they don't. And I think it, it, it basically, can you ask good questions and can you hold space to let the person yap their fucking face off? Yeah. You have let me yap my face off. And so I appreciate that. 
Dude, and, and in response to that, my face has been yapped. <laughs> it's been good. I don't know why my pants are still on. It's getting weird. <laughs> Next time, no pants. Yeah, 100% no pants. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I really hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, you can find that full episode, and I will put some snippets up as well on my YouTube channel, Tom Ahern. Uh, have a watch. It's good fun. You can see the, there's a bit of lagging with the Skype sometimes, but it's cool. I think it's better, and from what you guys have been telling me, I think it's better to have the, vis- the visual there as well as just the audio. So uh, if you did like the show, guys, you can leave me a rating and review on iTunes. That would really help me. It takes um, maybe eight seconds out of your day, and believe me, when I was on AdventureFit Radio as well, and Bill and I were asking for people to do that, it's like annoying and you don't want to do it, but if you could do it for me, that would be absolutely radical. I would love it, and I would give you a, uh, a metaphysical hug and kiss. <laughs> um, yeah, so until next week, guys, I'll speak to you then.